0: I'm JR. I'm Josh. And I'm Mark. And tonight we are going to be talking about Series 8. But before we do, Mark, it's been an age since you've been on the podcast. Are you looking forward to talking Doctor Who? Uh,
1: Have I missed anything? Has there been like a new series on or something?
0: That's what we're going to talk about, Mark. I just (laughs) said it.
1: (laughs) Yes, it's been a long time, but yeah, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, well, we couldn't... I could not... I could not resist getting you on to get your thoughts on what we've been watching for the last three months. But Josh, what have you been up to lately?
2: Oh, you know what? I just got back a couple of weeks back from uh, Long Island Doctor Who, which is a a con in uh, Long Island, New York. And it was, oh my goodness. When you say
0: con, I've got to point out for the English listeners, that's short for... Short for convention, it's not what the people on Hustle get up to every week. Oh,
2: okay, yes, yes, it's it's not, and <laughs> and Hustle is something I desperately want to watch because I'm a huge Leverage fan. So, um, anyway, I have not watched it yet, but uh, that's on a different. But tell story. us about
0: Long Island Who?
2: So Long Island Who? Um, there were some really great guests there. We actually had two doctors. We had uh, Paul McGann and Colin Baker, and um, lots of Second Doctor folks: Deborah Watling, Wendy Padbury, Fraser Hines. Um,
0: Oh, wow. Great. Yeah, it was
2: great. Um, Nicola Bryant was also there. She is absolutely stunning, you guys. I don't know if you've seen her in person recently, but (laughs) absolutely stunning. Even still, she doesn't age. The woman does not age. Um, She's got
0: a portrait in her attic.
2: (laughs) I have no idea how this is possible, but... um, uh, no, it was uh, and uh, I certainly Terry Malloy was there. Uh, they had uh, a few new series folks but but you know not anybody to speak of it, it just uh, some bit part people like uh, the woman from night of the Night of the doctor was there uh, Emma Campbell Jones, I think her name is. Oh yeah um, oh yeah, yeah yeah, so it was it was it's it now for those of you who have gone to conventions, um, big ones, uh, Long Island Two is just getting started. Um, they're in their second year. They've just completed their second year. Uh, they're going to have a third year next year, where it's going to be in a uh, in a bigger, nicer hotel. And um, but for this year, it was it was much more intimate um, and much more accessible. Uh, and as a result, I think people really enjoy that. The folks who go to Gallifrey One in L.A. would really appreciate this con in that. Um, in that it is it is much much smaller group of people and as a result your accessibility to the guests is much more significant so
0: you have more time I, t- I tell you what Josh you've never been to a, a convention in Britain no but there, there's about 200 paying customers paying people and everybody ends up sitting outside the front of the hotel having cigarettes and, and chatting to the stars <laughs>
2: oh really oh that's great actually <laughs> yeah. that's
0: really great
2: um, I'm just comparing it in my in my world. I compare it to Galifrey One. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Because I mean that that's my convention experience. Really, it, it's not in anything else. And um, as a podcaster, I was I was very lucky. I was given the opportunity to interview guests as well as um, I actually interviewed Daphne Ashbrook and Yiji So on stage that Sunday morning for what what uh, the showrunners call Ken deep calls." coffee and podcasts um oh yeah so they had a breakfast for paying customers and we would go on stage and do uh interviews with uh with a group of folks um i knew i had daphne and uh and YG so but we and this is this is a, a exclusive for blue box podcast i actually knew it was oh. daphne and and YG, but but uh they played it off as if it was my memory cheats and they spun the wheel of the guests that i was going to be talking mm-hmm. to and like it's it settled on uh, Daphne and uh, YG, who were just amazingly engaging. And one other thing I'll say in, in interviewing a lot of these folks is that...
0: Well, who else did you get to interview?
2: Oh, well, I interviewed um, uh, David Huey, who's on the Who on Who podcast, and I also... We, what we did was we combined our time. So we actually interviewed these folks together. So we got about 10 minutes on average, 10 to 12 minutes... And right. so we interviewed um, Paul McGann. Paul McGann was the first interview I've ever done in my life.
0: Wow! That, does that? that I place mean, to <laughs> it is crazy. It was crazy. Start at the top.
2: And, and and what's amazing is is that the the interviews took place like kind of in a hotel room. So if you imagine a hotel room where you have kind of the chair in the corner, and then you have a little table, and I'm like kind of sitting on the bed okay oh wow
0: yeah and yeah. and
2: uh, D- David huey has got his r- materials and I'm just like I'm talking to Paul McGann and we're having a conversation and I'm like, David turn on the thing turn on the recorder because he was talking about acting and he was talking about how he got um, uh, how he got hired how he got cast for the role um, and it was really interesting stuff and I'm I, he saw fud- fiddling with his recording equipment. Um, so in consequence it actually starts, Like, if you listen to the recording, it actually starts like it's in the middle. Um, In any case, so Paul McGann for a little while. And then what we did was uh, we had to come back. So we were lucky enough to interview Deborah Watling, who was just walking out of an interview. And um, Andre Tessier allowed us to he was the he's the guy who kind of controlled all this, um, allowed us to interview her like off the cuff. It wasn't on our schedule. So um I I mean standing there in the in this like suite and Deborah Watling comes out and she just starts talking to me and it's just so so sweet. And uh Andre was telling everybody it was my birthday. It was actually my birthday that day. And she said happy birthday and she came over and hugged and kissed me. Which hey. I <laughs> unbelievable. And um so we just sat down and we talked and and we just went from interview to interview after that. The next one was with Wendy Padbury, which we talked more about her being an agent. And she discovered Matt Smith. I don't know if you guys know that. That was a
1: great interview. That was a really good wow. interview. Yeah,
2: she, she discovered Matt Smith, which is, which is an amazing story. Um, and then we, uh, we were lucky enough to interview Terence Dix. Um, Terence, I could spend probably hours talking to. Um, oh, unfortunately, no unfortunately, we only had ten minutes, and David wanted to talk about the five doctors, and I was much more interested in season six, so we tried to fit a little bit of both in there. Um, but he was wonderful. What a great we we did this in the corner of the of the suite, and there was one point where it was just so loud in the suite that Terrence just got up. I don't know if this is in the recording, Mark. You can tell me where he just tells everybody. I only got halfway through that one. Oh, okay, he just tells everybody to, to be quiet. <laughs> I'm doing an interview over here. Um, and, so where
0: where can we hear all these things,
2: Joe? Oh, it's on the Who on Who feed. So um, it's H O O O N W H O. That's that's uh, Who on Who. Normally they do um, uh, reviews of classic series DVDs, but for this one it's it's completely uh, interviews.
1: Right. And then it was Nickel well, Bryant. So far has been really good.
2: Yeah, then it was Nicola Bryant, and uh, finally we did Colin Baker as well, and he's an wow. he's an interesting guy.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, and he uh, from a very interesting period of the program as well. Yes. So Mark, what have you been up to? Anything exciting?
1: Oh, you know the same old. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> been watching a bit of Doctor
0: Who, uh, which segues nicely into. Well, actually, I've got some. I've got some emails about Series 8 that I've been collecting over the last couple of weeks since it's finished. So I think I'll do a couple of emails now, then we'll get in and talk about it, and then we'll do the others at the end.
1: I've noticed while I've been away, the emails have gotten a lot longer.
0: Yeah, I don't know what's going on, but people seem to think that long emails is... uh, Well, I think they just like to hear me reading out their words. In an Australian accent. Yeah, I'm not going to do that tonight. But in honour of Cheer. Josh, I'll do it in a—I'll do it in an American accent. Oh, good. Let's hear her Oh, this. lordy! Oh my God! I wasn't actually gonna. <laughs> Dylan, Go,
1: JR. you made a promise. Oh my God!
0: Dylan Deadline Reese says hi, Blue Boxers. Well, Series <laughs> Eight was a ride and a half. Capaldi and Coleman have been fabulous throughout. The stories have been a bit of a mixed bag for me. I really disliked the first three episodes for varying reasons, with Deep Breath being my least favorite of the series, possibly my least favorite Doctor Who of all time. Things picked up after that, with a solid run through to the end. Despite the odd hiccup, there was nothing that out and out ruined a story for me. I must shout out In the Forest of the Night, in particular. I know it's been criticized by many. I, however, thoroughly enjoyed it. While it may have been a little light on dramatic tension, I found the whole thing very warm and cuddly. I wouldn't want my Doctor Who to be like that all the time, but once in a while it's fine with me. My major gripe with the series has been some truly woeful special effects. I really don't think in this day and age there is any space for a primetime show to get away with such substandard FX. I'm looking at you flying Cybermen, Rusty the Dalek, and the animals in the forest. Part of me thinks the production of Doctor Who should really be handed over to Worldwide so they can pump back in a lot more of the money that it makes through overseas sales and merchandise, etc. That way, the show can compete visually with shows like Game of Thrones, Arrow, and The Walking Dead. It's becoming painfully obvious that the BBC license fee just can't stretch to the lengths of the writer's imaginations. Right, that was the first paragraph. I'm, oh, gosh, gonna... I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm just going to carry on in an English accent. <laughs> Why? Why? That was perfect. <laughs> what do you mean? It was I, perfect. I was
2: thinking. I was thinking like um, Peter Purvis in uh, in the Chase.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Are you from? Yeah, Al- yeah. You were totally from
2: Alabama. <laughs> what year is
0: it there in Alabama? My God, it's 1965. <laughs> <clears throat> Dylan Deadline Reese goes on to say. I know you touched on the anti-Moffat crowd last time, but I'd like to throw my two pence in. I don't like all of New Who, I don't like all of Old Who, but I love Doctor Who in general. If you don't like what's on TV, don't watch it. Go put on something you do like from your DVD collection, or pick up one of the countless releases for Big Finish that offer a great alternative to the TV stories. I've actually felt Big Finish's output has been a lot stronger than what's been on TV this year, but that's another email altogether. Not to mention the thousands of books, comics and whatever else is out there. And if you don't like any of that, then you probably don't really like the show at all. The format of Doctor Who is such that it will be hit and miss. It's a new story every week. Writers come and go, production staff come and go, and it's a wonder that they get it made at all. Sometimes they will get it completely wrong and produce a clangour. Other times, the story just won't be to your personal taste. But that doesn't mean it's shit. Thanks for guiding us through the series with your insightful podcasts. Keep up the good work. Blah, blah, blah. Dylan.
2: Or you could have a Doctor Who with the Clangers in it.
0: Hey! hey. <laughs> Which go. Doctor Who would that be?
2: That would be the Sea Devils! Hey! Hey!
0: Uh, that talking about Series 8. No, that was Season 8, wasn't it? No, that was, no, that was se- Season 9. Thank you. Oh dear. Thank you, I
2: I, I didn't have to correct maybe you. Maybe we'll, yes. get the,
0: maybe we'll get the Sea Devils next year in tribute. That is a possibility, yes. Do you think we'll get the Zygons or the Ice Warriors next year, as soon as we didn't have them this year? And they've made the costumes now, haven't they?
2: Yeah, they have to show the Ice Warriors again. It has to happen.
1: You'd think? Yeah. Well, they are, they are uh, going to the North Pole in the Christmas special, just saying.
0: <laughs> why you think the ice warriors come from the north pole no the zygons,
1: the zygons yes of come course from the, the north- ice warriors you know they could be hanging out they like the snow do
0: they they yeah. come from mars
1: I know but they could be on holiday
2: that's why they call them the
1: it's ice warriors Right. Yeah. No, the
0: reason he's called the ice warrior is because they dug the first one out of the ice but he didn't like it that much in there he was frozen stiff yeah they,
2: they called them ice warriors that's their name It's co- act- it's colder on mars
0: no. Yes. It's got a thinner atmosphere. It's warmer. It's not warmer on Mars. It's colder. It is now. It wasn't when they were around I, thousands of years how ago. How do we know when they so were probably. around? Probably. I don't know. I'm talking crap. Yeah, me too. Let's take another email and then let's get into <laughs> series eight. Weird bean says, uh, "I'll try a New York accent for this one, shall I?" Please don't tread carefully, Jr. Okay, I'm not going to do it. Weird bean says, do "Hello, blue." It's an accent. Boston.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I barely have a Boston accent, so
0: Yeah, I was going to say
2: I can't copy Josh. Yeah, exactly. Please... It's <laughs> Only when I've had a few drinks do I do I really
0: get into my Boston accent. Oh, when I've had a few drinks I can do the accents from Fargo, which is Minnesota. Yeah, so you have sort of a Scandinavian
2: slant to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. I think i am probably better off not trying that now. Weird Bean says hello blue boxers well as the series is now over until christmas and as i've had enough time to finally recover from the season finale i thought it was time i badgered you again there's something you've touched on but not fully expressed and that's the balance of this season has this or has this not been the most beautifully paced and ordered season Whatever you might think of Robot of Sherwood, after two rather darker-toned episodes, it was the perfect palate cleanser. In the Forest of the Night was much-needed calm before the unrelenting storm of the two-part climax. Please discuss among yourselves, he says, and I'm sure we will in a minute. In fact, he carries on, the climax was amazing. Missy, my second favourite master after Roger Delgado. Or do I mean joint favourite? She really is. That bananas. I mean good. Rewatching the series from the beginning, knowing who Missy is, really does alter the viewing experience. She goes from being a creepy or unnerving presence to being downright sinister and terrifying. The story arc and character development throughout this series has been marvellously done and the performances have been frankly stunning. Peter Capaldi is most certainly my favourite New Who Doctor and Jenna Coleman my favourite New Who companion. And, back to the finale, it made me cry, which was a new experience for me. It made me cheer, and at that moment when the Doctor and Clara both lied to each other, I actually shouted out, "'You can't leave it this way!' And then, just in case my wife had turned deaf at some point during the episode, I turned round to her and repeated twice, "'They can't leave it that way!' I was genuinely distraught. "'I need the Christmas episode now! I need to see them both being okay. That teaser on children in need was not enough!' This was a powerful conclusion to the series and as amazing as it was, I really hope that Moffat doesn't make a habit of this kind of thing. The Doctor is an idiot with a box and a screwdriver, just passing through, lending a hand and learning. And I really, really hope that's what we get to see in the next season finale, something a little more light-hearted. Your podcast is as excellent as ever, guys, so thanks to you all, and I really hope that Mark is able to rejoin you at some point in the future. Yay!
1: Sadly, he can't make it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then he says, I'm not sure if this is a typo, but I think it's deliberate, so I'm keeping it. He says, and I might use this word at some point in the future. He says, keep up the superbative work, gentlemen. (laughs) Weird bean. P.S. Lee, put your fingers in your ears now. Fortunately, Lee's not here. Dan Starkey. He never listens to the podcast anyway. No, he doesn't. Dan Starkey is Santa's little helper. How can that not be awesome? But the story looks like the thing with alien, as in H.R. Geiger-looking creatures. Hmm. I rewatched John Carpenter's *The Thing* today. As much as I love it, that is not a happy film. Maybe I best get the man-sized tissues ready for Christmas Day. And no, J.R., that's not a euphemism. Well, not that's this time. That's my
1: catchphrase. You've taken that over this series. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so. I'm not sure how we're going to do this. We could either go through story by story or we could just look at themes and characters going through the series. And I think it would be nicer if we did that. But first of all, Mark, overall, overall, have you enjoyed series eight?
1: I have. Um, I wasn't really sure what to expect. I knew pretty much I was going to really love Capaldi, but obviously you're never really sure until you see how they get portrayed on screen. Um, but yeah, I think it's one of the strongest seasons of the new series so far, with a few slightly iffy episodes
0: that I'm sure we'll come to Iffy episodes? There's never been a series of Doctor Who with iffy episodes in it Josh, now that we've got to the end I know you joined us about a third of the way through but now we've got to the end, what do you think overall? Did Series 8 work out for you?
2: Oh, Series 8 more than worked out for me uh, oh, I just uh, it was it was some of the best Doctor Who I've seen in a long, long time. I really feel that way. Um, I I really you know there were some iffy things. There's no doubt about it. There were some things I enjoyed a little bit less. But the thing that was consistent throughout the entire series was Peter Capaldi and Jenna Coleman, who yeah, who may have absolutely. been the best. And I've said this before um, on another podcast, but they may be the best two actors to have the Doctor and companion role ever. Oh, and suddenly
0: together at the same
2: time,
1: yeah. yeah. As a duo, they're very strong. Um, yeah, I, yeah.
2: I mean, I've already said I believe Jenna Coleman to be the best actress to have taken on an assistant role, if you will, assistant, doctor's friend, carer, mm. whatever you want to say. Um, and and as a result, it didn't matter what the story was around them. Um, I couldn't keep my eyes off either one of them, and that that made it very, very simple for me to even watch the stories I didn't love as much as others so it sort of reminds me of my experience with tom baker full stop
0: right yes
1: i see echoes of tom baker in capaldi's performance
2: oh he is the fourth new new who doctor yeah there's that
0: yes he is and we're well we're actually 10 years into new who now Mm. Which I suppose would put us somewhere in the middle of John Pertwee's time, uh, you know, if we were talking classic series pace. But actually in the newer pace of modern Doctor Who, it feels right to have somebody who... I won't say echoes Tom Baker, but somebody who's taking the role from the same angle as Tom Mm. Baker did. Looking at it to be a little bit more alien, a little bit more distant. Unpredictable. yeah, the first three Doctors... I know William Hartnell started out very distant and very alien, but it wasn't long, really, before he kind of became... not necessarily the cuddly grandfather, but you know what I'm saying. As soon as Vicky was established in the programme... Yes. William Hartnell was a completely different Doctor. And Patrick Troughton and John Pertwee... You know, Obviously, there were different aspects to their personalities but Tom Baker was the one who came along and really shook the part up wasn't he he was the first young
2: um doctor which is interesting because our fourth doctor in the new series is our first older doctor mm. um and and as a result we're we're having you know a different point of view of our doctor just like they had a different point of view of Tom Baker uh, of a of a doctor when Tom Baker took over and i think that that it it has the same effect in that if this doctor is strong enough it is going to garner um, the same, if not an increased audience. So I find that very, very interesting uh, overall.
0: Right. We'll get into talking more about Peter Capaldi and Jenna Coleman later, because I'm sure we'll talk about the story arcs and the relationships and stuff. But seeing as you've both brought it up, you've both said it's had some iffy moments. We'll talk about what your favorite moments were by the end of the podcast, but first, Mark, what were your iffy moments?
1: Well, the problem is, I'm going to say mine and somebody else will turn around and go, Oh, actually, no, those were my favourite episodes. So that's all right. It's all subjective. But yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, early on, I didn't quite take it into the Dalek. It
0: looks really good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's Don't worry.
0: Right. Into the Dalek, Mark.
1: That's that's Phil Ford. He's not happy with me. (laughs) No, he's probably not. Uh, (laughs) um, Visually, it looked stunning. You know, it had some really cool effects. I I loved the shot of them entering the Dalek through the eye stalk. That was really cool. Oh
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Um, But I don't know. It just left me a bit cold. Maybe it's just because I was very tired when I watched it the first time. I had to sort of watch it a second time to really try and get a bit of a gist of what was going on. But that one didn't really strike me as that memorable. Yeah. Um, bizarrely, listening to the podcast when you guys were putting it out, you all had a bit of a downer on Robot of Sherwood. I really loved that story. Hmm. Ah. So, any any other iffy bits, Mark? Um, I might get a bit of flack for this, but I wasn't a huge fan of In the Forest of the Night. Why would you Again, get flack? it looked pretty cool. Yeah. Well, some people really love it, Yes, yeah, a certain
0: um, person sitting on this podcast really enjoyed that episode, yeah, Josh,
2: yeah, that wouldn't be me, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, fair and
2: right. there were
1: elements of the finale that I didn't like as well.
0: Oh, I think we'll come to the finale later mm. because that is a big talking point, so we'll get mm. to. That. I just
1: didn't feel there was any threat in in the Forest of the Night. it looked pretty, um, there were some kind of nice character moments. Again, as Josh was saying, throughout Capaldi and Jenna Coleman, you know, were fantastic the right of way through. But it just, I didn't feel there was any danger at any point.
0: I, yeah, I know, I know that a lot of people have criticised it, and a lot of the time specifically for that. And I know a lot of people dislike it, and I'm in the minority for liking it. But I just enjoyed it as a completely different type of Doctor Who story for a change. But anyway, but Josh, go on then. In the Forest of the Night was one of your lowlights as well then, I'm guessing.
2: Yeah, I mean, for the same reasons that Mark uh, put out there. I mean, when you have a group of children, you know none of them are going to die. Um, so you really, the mm. peril goes downward and you don't worry about the, the, the angry tiger or anything like that. I mean, I don't think we're going to see on Doctor Who a tiger mauling a child or an adult for that matter. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> no. Um, So, as a result, um, I never feared the tiger. I never feared the animals. Um, I guess the biggest piece piece of peril was that we were going to burn down those trees when the trees were supposed to be helping us through a solar flare or whatever it was, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess that was the biggest peril in the whole thing. And at the same time, the trees didn't allow you to burn them. Um, So, yeah, I was... uh, It it really was... it really wasn't my favorite, but again, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm not gonna just point to Capaldi and and Jenna Coleman here. The direction in this one yeah. was absolutely mm. spot on, and that's the other thing about this mm-hmm. particular series, which I believe is something that was consistent throughout, and that is that the d- the direction of the series overall was spectacular, and some of the best direction you will ever see, and it better get mm. some awards.
0: It I better. was listening to a. I was listening to a podcast the other morning and one of the two hosts I think it was who's he oh, yeah. and one of the one of the two hosts said to the other one so which of the directors from this year would you have back next year and the other host just said oh all of them and all the same writers as well just get exactly the same people back and just you know I think pretty much that's been true I think there's been a consistency in the direction and a, a pori you know Mark's just pointed it in, into the Dalek and you've both pointed at In the Forest of the Night. But give that same writer, those same writers, another crack at the show. And, you know, with Phil Ford, you get Waters of Mars. Which I love. And I've no doubt that Frank Cottrell Boyce, given a second attempt at Doctor Who, would come up with something completely different as well. as different yeah. as different As different as 24-hour party people is from millions. You know, which just shows the amount of scope in in Frank Cottrell Boyce's career and,
2: and Mark Josh Atis, any other low get, light and, and yeah, Mark Gatiss yeah. if you give him another one he might create Victory of the Daleks or something oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> well that's the man who wrote Victory of the Daleks and the Crimson Horror so what can you say you're going to get true. somewhere between the two extremes
2: that's true, were there, that's any
0: true. Other, were there any others Josh that you didn't especially like before we get on to the ones that we did
2: yeah so Robot of Sherwood I'm not a huge fan of um but, I mean, as the story went, uh, the whole idea behind, uh, I, I didn't really, at the end of the day, I didn't really get it. Um, and maybe that's because I was concentrating too much on what Jenna Coleman was wearing. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm with you there, Josh. But
2: um, it just, uh, I don't know, the whole golden arrow thing. And, uh, the, that l- was the, a tad lame. The whole, um, if you will, I'll use a colloquialism here, the cockfighting that was going on. Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was was a little bit, um, shall we say, um, overdone. Yeah, overdone is best word. Yeah. I had another word. Um, but uh, it it just it. I, I didn't. I didn't think I really liked that one. I mean, that one was the was the quintessential Colin Baker like story, where the doctor has to you know show that he's the best and he's the smartest and he's the cleverest, etc. Yeah. I don't think that's necessary. I don't think we need it. I just no, felt it say.
1: gave a a slight sort of lighter side to his personality because the first two were pretty dark and
0: and grim. I, don't know, I just thought it you gave see, a contrast to that. I felt it was a lighter story, but I thought it showed an even darker side to his personality because all he seemed concerned with was proving himself to everybody. He seemed darker in that one to me. Well,
1: Any uh, episode where he goes, hi, has got to make you smile, surely.
0: Well, as a big John Pertwee fan, Mark, (laughs) I thought that would especially make you smile. Well,
1: that's the thing, you see. Everyone's saying, oh, yeah, he's going to be like uh, John Pertwee. But, I mean, yeah, he can be a bit irascible. But um, I don't know. He just has this magnetism about him, which I just don't get with Mr Pertwee. Sorry, John. Fair enough. He's more like Colin
2: Baker, know, if Colin Baker could have been the Doctor that he should have been.
0: Yeah. Mm. Oh, and actually, he's like Tom Baker. Yeah. You know, I think he's quite a lot like Tom Baker. Mm. Yeah, I he, see that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Look, the story I thought was perhaps least good, apart from Robot of Sherwood, was Flatline, which a lot of people yeah. really, really liked. I'm surprised.
2: That yeah, that. so well, so why, J.R.?
0: Well, I think it's a really good story. I think there's maybe two or three big problems with it, and one is, at the end, there's no resolution given. I've spoken about this on the podcast before, so I'll not go into it in more depth. People can listen to the review if they want to hear me talk about that for about 15 minutes. (laughs) But the waving of the sonic screwdriver at the end is not really how it should have ended. And you know, another problem I had with that was the way they really showed that gang of um, you know criminals and the person looking after them mm. as caricatures of the criminals being the good guys and the guy who was there to look after them being the bad guy and you know life isn't that black and white and generally speaking criminals aren't the good guys so the way he kind of turned it on his head as if he were saying hey there are some crimes that it's perfectly fine to commit like graffiti is a fine crime it just seemed a bit two dimensional to me which is odd in a story that was about two dimensions and three dimensions having said
1: that you could argue that they kind of flipped it a bit in the ending when uh, of the people who survive you've got the really nasty piece of work walks away quite happily at the end Well, yeah. whereas you kind of expect him to get his comeuppance
0: well I don't think that did flip it I think that was there at the end <clears throat> as a way of rounding it off by saying, look, and look who else survived. Hmm. I don't know. I just found that all a bit two-dimensional, and it didn't really sit well with me. I thought if you're going to do characters like that, you, in order to make your point, you've got to do it much more in shades of grey. Otherwise, it just looks like you're trying to make a point.
2: Yeah, I thought that that group was, um, was put there ostensibly to have a group of humans available to have some to have some deaths occur um i didn't really think about it as if they were it was just situational i think you know how do we get a bunch of people in front of a wall cleaning the wall and i think the best yeah uh, yeah you're probably uh, right material to do that is to is to have people who had to do it um yeah, And you're
0: probably right. The writer probably didn't do, think too deeply about it at all. He probably just thought by making the foreman of the gang the nasty one, he probably just thought that was quite funny. Yes. I don't know. It just struck me as an odd and slightly iffy choice and kind of soured it just a little bit for me, which is not to say that I didn't still thoroughly enjoy it. I mean, as not a... the whole
2: point of Flatline that, that I really took out of it was the fact that these aliens, whoever they were, were able to change something from a three-dimensional or suck the dimensions out of mm. out of mm. matter and i think that that's a brand new interesting idea. Mm. So i kind of oh, yeah. i kind of dug that, you know, cuz we yeah. we deal with dimensions all the time in the tardis.
0: And, and how often is it that somebody comes up with a doctor who monster that's something brand new that's never been seen in all 50 years? It's
1: it made me think of a sort of PJ Hammond sort of uh yeah, yeah. Story where you've got these creatures coming from another dimension and trying to force their way into ours. I just thought that was quite a cool concept.
0: And the fact that it was two dimensional creatures trying to force their way into a three dimensional world just mm-hmm. brilliant. It is. Yes, be, it is. Yeah.
2: Jamie Matheson, man. Okay Jamie then Ma- Josh.
0: Jamie Matheson. Oh Okay then Josh. What was your <laughs> favorite story of series eight?
2: Um, you know it's changed over time. Like, I really... Mm. When Time Heist came out, and I know that a lot but of don't people don't... But don't
0: limit like... it to one choice. S- okay.
2: Say several if you like. Well, I'm going to say several. Um, Go on, then. <laughs> so, Mummy on the Orient Express was probably my all-time favorite of of the whole season. I thought it was such perfect Doctor Who uh, on so many different levels. Um I love Time Heist. Not a lot of people love Time Heist. Um, I've heard negative things about Time Heist. But Time Heist was one of those where you just don't know where you are, and you have to figure out where you are while at the same time saving your own life. And yeah. I just thought that was brilliant. It was so brilliantly conceived. kept me on the, the edge of my seat the whole time. And finally, Listen, which actually mm. took me into the Capaldi era full and true. Because after I watch Listen, I'm like, if it's going to get better from here, we are talking about some of the best Doctor Who we'll ever watch. So I would say that all of those come in first for me. And I do like Dark Water, but um, Dark Water and Death in Heaven put together, you know, put it just a slight notch below the ones I just mentioned.
0: Fair enough. Mark, then, your favorite? Favorites? Well, this is a bit
1: embarrassing. My three favorites are the same ones as Josh. Well, that's fair enough. Um, I felt, um, listen, I know a lot of people didn't like the idea of it being, um, where Jenna's being an influence on on the Doctor's childhood and things like that, and they didn't like the idea that it was left open, whether the thing was a monster or whether it was uh, a kid from the the dorm next door. Uh, But I loved it. I thought it was really atmospheric. The acting was brilliant. Um, right the way through this series, they've had quite a few kids, and I think they've all been pretty solid. Um, the young lad who plays Rupert Pink I thought was really good, um, and some lovely character moments. As you talked about him being like Tom Baker. One of the things that really uh, shone for me in this episode is when he's talking to Clara in the TARDIS, and uh, she says, and then what? And he says, we're going to find out what's under your bed, and he shoots her this really wicked smile, uh, it looks quite evil in many ways and it reminds me of Tom Baker because he could be quite scary but in a kind yeah. of reassuring way so I really loved that Time Heist I was a big fan of actually I really like Hustle um, and that really ticked all my boxes because um, even visually obviously the director picked up on the sort of uh, the cliches from that style of um, mm. storytelling and it kind of employed them and I thought that was great I really liked the extra characters that came in maybe we could not, it would be nice to see them come back, as maybe like gonna, the new Paternoster gang.
0: If you're going to do a hustle type episode, a, mm. a heist episode, you've got to make sure that well, you've got to make sure first of all that there are going to be twists in it. Because if you get to the end of a story like that and it's not had twists, you're letting your mm. audience down. But you've got to make sure the twists are worthwhile. And in that story, I thought the twists really were worthwhile.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, um, the Mummy on the Iron Express was superb. Again, some great moments when he whips out the cigarette case. You're thinking, what, is he going to actually start smoking? And then he's got jelly babies inside.
0: That's just great. Yes. That um, was a beautiful moment. That's from
2: actually now That's from Face sure, of yeah. Evil, by the way. I mean, I, I actually, I went back and watched Face of Evil because when he's in Zoannan's, uh, when he's in that chamber where Zoannan is, he picks, yeah. out, he picks up a cigarette case and pulls a jelly baby out of it.
0: Really? Yeah. You really? yeah. have to go back oh, wow. and watch that now definitely yeah uh, and
1: also uh, while I just remembered um, I really like The Caretaker I think that oh, yeah. got sort of yeah. a fairly mixed response from what I've heard from various people I like but The I Caretaker too yeah. It great.
2: yeah it's like you, you just pick an episode and it's like you know what I was just thinking oh my god I really love The Caretaker too you know mm. <laughs> it, th- that's
0: what <laughs> this season's about all
1: about much all of them yeah
0: and that's, so that's what this season
2: is totally
1: all
0: about Well, this is the thing. There's a consistency. And I think it's mostly down to Stephen Moffat wanting to tell this character story across all 12 episodes. Because he's never quite done that before. (coughs) Even in the past, when he's done something with Amy and Rory, Mm -hmm. or when he did the previous series with Clara, you kind of had the character development at the start and at the end, and maybe in some of the episodes in between. But in series eight... He's had character development in pretty much every single episode. Every single episode uh, uh, has been the story of a different juncture in the relationship between the three main characters. So Danny Pink, what do we think of Danny Pink? And what do we think of the idea of Stephen Moffat using the fact that the companion stays behind on Earth between adventures and is just day-tripping in order to tell an actual story about what goes on when she's back on Earth? Rather than just dropping in on Mickey and Jackie every now and again, something really different. Did we like it?
2: I thought it was real. I, I thought you know the the most amazing thing about this particular series is that the characters are so built out, so real and flawed, all at the same time, that you just believe them. And I I think that the way the storytelling occurred in this particular series, it there's that scene. Where Clara is just coming out of the TARDIS and she's like, "I can't do this anymore," you know, and she want to go for a run, and she's, "Oh my god, I can't do this anymore." Um, it just seems so real to me um, that y- you believe the characters, you want you you grow to like the characters, even though they are massively flawed, and yeah. and their flaws are things that you know get in their way as the as the season goes on.
0: And the flaws all seem real as well. They Absolutely. Don't... I mean, people have been complaining about some of the flaws saying, oh, I don't like it that Danny does such and such. And I'm thinking, yeah, you're not supposed to like it. It's the kind of thing that people really do. Exactly.
2: Thank you. Oh, my God. Yeah. Thank you. Because <laughs> I, I was on another podcast where I was having an argument with uh, with somebody. And it was over whether Jenna... Oh, Jenna whether really uh, K- Clara really loved Danny or not. Because if she really loved him, in, in her perspective, she never would have lied to him.
1: She, oh! And
2: and I, <laughs> and I was just like, no, no, you don't get it. You totally don't get it. This is what real people do, is that yeah. is that they hold back these scenarios because they are protecting their relationships. That's real. That's yeah. what, re- even though it's not logical, and we can easily, you know we can easily play the people that uh you know we're flawless we we would tell our partners about this scenario because we trust in our relationship and all that nonsense okay the fact of the matter is is that in in real relationships things like this happen it doesn't mean that clara loved danny any less it it might even mean that she loved him more
0: Mm, she was more afraid that if she did talk to him about this stuff, that would be the end. So she was being selfish, but she was being honest and true. Yes. Mark, Mark, what did you think of all this?
1: Um, I thought Samuel Anderson was excellent. I thought he did a great job. Um, I like the fact that when they got together, it was quite an awkward kind of courtship. Yeah. So you kind of expect everything to be very super slick and they're forever kind of putting their foot in their mouths or yeah you know, it's just the little things that just come across as quite natural for sort of people who are just starting off a relationship they perhaps don't quite understand each other yet, yeah you've got yeah. to see them grow throughout the
0: the series um Samuel Anderson made what could potentially have been a quite unlikable character, Mm. particularly as, essentially, he's playing the character who's taking the companion away from the Doctor. So he's really, actually, a kind of villain of the piece. But Samuel Anderson played him so well, he made him into a thoroughly likable character. In spite of all that, yeah.
1: I thought he came across very well, but there was... um, I don't know if you kind of thought this. In The Caretaker, I think it's in The Caretaker... Um, when um, it's not exactly an ultimatum, but obviously he finds out about yeah. the Doctor. And there is just that sort of edge of not quite a controlling um, element to him, but you just kind of get that impression that well, again, he's, he's got a bit of a dark side to him.
0: Yeah, but like again, like uh, as Josh was talking about just now, that seems real. It seems yeah. totally real. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. because if you're afraid that you're partner girlfriend fiance mm-hmm. whatever is off having and i know there's been uh, people have been analogizing it with having an mm-hmm. affair she's yeah. off having this affair essentially with mm-hmm. this other character you are going to be afraid and you are going to yeah. try and lay down the law
2: mm-hmm. it's about the dangerous situations as well i mean mm. he knows that she's going into dangerous situations and he's not going to be able to help
0: yeah so absolutely. you know from
2: his perspective he's just trying to keep her safe it's not just the the re, the relationship with the doctor, which nah. is which is something that that he's trying to um, come to terms with, but also you know just that whole dangerous piece. I, I just think think about it from this perspective and jr. i'll take I'll take your um, example a little bit further. What if you were dating Clara, if you were dating her? And she yeah, would, she would go off exactly, don't we all? <laughs> yeah. um, but but it, you know you sort of feel the same way. Is yeah. that you know? Okay, well I trust you, but at the same time, what I don't trust is that he's going to put you in a situation where
0: mm.
2: you may get hurt
0: or die. Yeah. Well, here's a here's a an an, an example of an analogy. If your partner was going to go off and do some rock climbing, now you may not be able to stop that person from going off and doing the rock climbing, but you might not think it's a very wise idea, but you'd want to make sure you were there to make sure that person was safe while they were doing it. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. No, definitely. I think um, it also helped Clara's character, I felt, this season. Um, I really liked uh, the character in Series 7, and I thought um, Jenna Coleman did a really good job with what she was given... But I just felt you got to know the character a lot better this year. So much better. Yeah, yeah, and you could really empathize much more with the character, whereas I felt last time around she was more of a, well, like a talking plot point, really, just to move the, the series
0: on. Well, she was in the first and last appearances. I've said this before. I think she was exactly the same character last year, and they were giving her exactly the same character points, like um, in The Rings of Akaten, where she tries to save the day, and then in Nightmare in Silver, where she essentially does. They're giving her the same things to do, but Mm. it's because this year we've had the backdrop of the Danny Pink storyline that we see all the different facets of her coming to the fore. And also
1: that there's something at risk if things do go wrong. Yeah. Whereas if you don't really know the character, you're <clears throat> perhaps going to be quite so connected.
0: Now, there have been two things about this ongoing storyline that I've found quite interesting, one of which is very simply that everybody at the start of the series was expecting that by halfway through, Danny Pink, like Rory before him and Mickey before him, would be travelling on the TARDIS. That never happened. Mm. Everybody was expecting the caretaker yeah. to be the story where they kind of the three characters came together, weren't they?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh yeah. That was <clears throat> that was something really different to do. Did uh, did you like that? Were you expecting Danny to be on the TARDIS and were you disappointed when he wasn't? Oh the most, the most amazing thing about this series for me
2: watching it is that the relationship, the real relationships that were going <clears throat> on didn't get in my way of enjoyment of the Doctor Who that I expect. And I think that that because that relationship was so real i didn't bother me that danny never went on the went into the tardis and and traveled with them um and i don't i can't explain it um i'm not big on the uh out outer relationships that occur and you know i i just point back to you know series one when when rose came back 12 months later Mm -hmm. and they had all the the uh, the signs out for her that she had gone missing and so on. Yeah, it's like it's an interesting idea, but for me, like Doctor Who is more than that. It's it's not it's not terrestrial. It's not everyday stuff. It's not you know children. It's not people in kitchens. And for some strange reason, this year I think that it helped the whole the whole of the Doctor Who pieces in this. And so I didn't mind that Danny wasn't a companion per se.
0: It's like. Stephen Moffat stopped, said, right, this is what Doctor Who's been doing ever since it came back. Now let's just stop and think about it and get it right.
2: Exactly. And and boy, did he get it right. He totally got it right.
0: Now, the other thing that I think's been interesting about the Danny Pink storyline, which is obviously this year's true story arc, much Mm -hmm. more so than the Missy story arc, is <clears throat> the fact that in each episode we've seen that we're at a different stage along the journey. It's not been an, a story that's unfolded almost in real time, as it were, across the three months. We've seen the first, the first meeting, then we see the first date, then we see them established as a couple, then we see the breakup, then we see them getting back together, and so on and so forth. Each episode has dealt with a specific a specific part of the journey. And they've not flowed into one another. Although, as a whole, it's been nice to see that story unfolding. Mm-hmm. But each each episode has been a different, specific stage rather than just a continuation uh, from where we left off last time. And I think those jumps have startled some fans because if you look at it, The Caretaker is at least a year on yeah. from Into the Dalek. Mm-hmm. And you've got to therefore assume that by the end of... Um, Dark Water and Death and Heaven were some considerable time on from The Caretaker as well. That surprised a few people but I think it's worked really well. I mean either of you two, do either of you two think sometimes the jumps were too much or do you think it's worked as well?
1: I think if you're paying attention um, maybe it's just because I'm a sad nerd and I kind of analyse these things a lot but you mentioned The Caretaker, there's a line of dialogue about how um, Danny Pink's already spoken to uh,
0: the parents Courtney's Courtney's
1: parents the previous year at parents evening so he knows what to expect so it's obviously um, giving you the information but it's just done in a very subtle way it's not it's kind of basil exposition from Austin Powers having to stand there and explain it to you Mm -hmm. which I thought was quite nice and uh, it helps to move things along without you know laboring the point
2: it didn't get in my way that's the thing. Like, I didn't think about it. It wasn't something that I said. Oh God, that was jarring. Um, it, I think it, a lot
1: of people got very angry about the start of uh, Mummy on the Orient Express because they were expecting it to be a Clara Light episode, and it opens after the initial uh, Mummy cold open, yeah. with them getting out the Tardis like old pals.
2: Well, I mean, they and did I think that upset they, a few people. They didn't completely ignore it. I no, mean, no. it was like, okay, this is the oh, last that was time. Brilliant. This is yeah. this is this is the final time and you know what, just yeah. just come with me one more time, we'll do something mm-hmm. fun. Um and I mean that, that that particular scene never made it into the show, but that's okay because you had enough explanation as to know that this was gonna be it. And that whole yeah. that whole story had this underlying underpinning plot about the doctor trying to get Clara to continue to travel with her, with him. Mm-hmm. And God, it just it just worked because you yeah. had a great story in between it, and even though she realized that the doctor's the one who has taught her essentially to lie, um it doesn't matter because at the end she wanted to continue to travel with him again.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: but it it has to <gasps> oh, do with this that final this... scene at
0: the end. Go on.
2: I was just going to talk about the addiction piece, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. And the, and the fact that that there there was an under underpinning idea also about how Clara was addicted to the tra- time travel, um, just like the doctor's addicted mm-hmm. to it. And yeah, and and how do you take? What do you do with an addiction? How do you manage an addiction? And I, I just think that that's you know something that you know the doctor was must... kind of an enabler
0: in that in that respect. Yeah, especially in a situation where you're both addicted to the same thing, so you're just feeding one another's addiction <clears throat> very much so <clears throat> that was a very interesting tact for Stephen moffat to take in fact because we've never <clears throat> we've never really examined that side of why he does what he does and why the companions do what they do before it's, but if you look at it really that's kind of fueled the whole series from quite a long time ago sarah jane smith had many opportunities to get off the TARDIS and go home, Mm. but she couldn't help herself either, could she? No, she
2: couldn't, and she had to be forced out, you know, essentially.
0: And when you look at it, given that the companion always ends up in dangerous situations, it's more, it's got to be more that keeps them travelling than just that they get on well with the Doctor. Yeah. You might get on well with this person, but if this person's going to lead you to death's door once every few weeks, you're not going to stand around for it, are you?
2: Imagine so if you're Perry.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, what, what, what's keeping Perry on board yeah. the TARDIS? Oh, my God, yeah.
1: <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the 1980s, so the less said about that, the well, better.
1: <laughs> your favourite era. You mentioned about the, the Doctor teaching her to lie. I mean, that has the ultimate payoff at the
0: very end of the series, uh-huh. with that scene yeah. in the cafe. It's so oh. sad. That scene is devastating mm. and really intelligent writing as well because yeah. he's seeded that throughout the entire 12 episodes. Totally. It's an astonishing piece of acting. When they walk into that room, both those characters are about to tell the other one the truth mm-hmm. and they both end up lying yes. accidentally. But it's completely believable.
1: Yeah.
2: Oh, yes, 100%.
1: It's to spare the other one, isn't it? It's, it's not mm. for their own happiness. It's to spare the, the other person. Yeah,
2: Which is what Clara was doing all along with Danny.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is why it's been such intelligent writing throughout the entire series, all the episodes. And like I said before, the only exception really is Robot of Sherwood, which is the only one that doesn't really touch on this story.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, agreed, agreed.
0: But there have been some amazing beats throughout it all. What do you think, then, of because this is extremely controversial. What do we think of the way Danny Pink's storyline ends? And I'll throw this into the hat again, but I said this a couple of weeks ago. It's my contention that Danny Pink has been a tribute as a character to the Brigadier and that the entire series has essentially been a tribute to the Brigadier or has been building up to be one. I don't know if you've heard this, Josh. Do you want me to explain? Yes. Okay, Danny Pink, used to be a soldier, ends up a maths teacher. Oh, well, yeah, never, true. Never voluntarily never voluntarily travels in the TARDIS. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he dies in the Doctor Who universe, much as the Brigadier does. And there are all sorts of other things as well, but it's the whole soldier thing and the relationship with the Doctor, because the Doctor's relationship with the Brigadier, although it might have become rather chummy in the middle of the Barry Letts era. His the doctor's relationship with the Brigadier was always slightly prickly and then they throw in lots of clues as well like having the uh, the airplane from the Brigadier's first ever story as the Brigadier, mm. the invasion and Sidon the very and then... subtle portrait on the wall Yeah, Cybermen (laughs) at St. Paul's. Yeah. There's even a story set in the underground, which is Flatline, of course. Yes. Yeah. There are all these clues throughout the series that what Stephen Moffat's doing is kind of a tribute to Unit and a tribute more specifically to the Brigadier. And I think it really comes to a head in those final scenes in Death in Heaven. But some people think that was really badly handled. Over to you two. Was it badly handled or was it actually heartfelt? And handled in as idiosyncratic a way as only Doctor Who can.
1: Well, I'll agree it was idiosyncratic. I really didn't like the Cyber Brigadier; it just didn't sit right with me. Um, I think I'm in the minority with that, but I yeah, don't think I so, just, Mark. I think it's. It, I, think it's I think it's pretty even.
0: I think it's pretty even. Yeah. Oh no, I certainly don't think you're in the minority of disliking that. I th- I think there is plenty of people who didn't des- who didn't like that at all. Josh, what did you think? I think I like it better now. Now that you've
2: uh, brought up the brigadier thing, that I didn't even think about. But you're right. You're totally right. I'm um, I, 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 saying I, this... I think it works. I think it works very, very well. So many different pieces that they've that they've clamored together to make mm. this all work. And and I've as... only
0: scratched the surface, really. Right. There's lots more little things in there.
2: Oh, this is the wonderful thing about. Stephen moffat's um most of Stephen moffat's stuff and and again i think he did it brilliantly this time sometimes he doesn't do it so well but this time he did it so incredibly well is that it just continues to make you think every minute it makes you think and you have to go back and watch it all again to think about it again um Mm, and I, i just think that you know, I wasn't bothered by the cyber brig. I, I just, a lot of people are bothered by it, but it, it seemed, to me it was like, it was surplus. It was, it was, it was out there and it was just extra for me. I mean, I was okay with it. I, I don't like it a lot, but I was okay with it. Um, And, you know, they had to save uh, the brigadier's daughter. They had to do that. So uh, what? The, what? To,
0: to have the brigadier saving his own daughter.
2: I think it's brilliant. It's such an interesting idea. And the fact that well, these cyber the only thing <clears throat> I have a problem with JR and Mark is that the Cybermen in this story were not all that scary.
0: Well, they're only sort of pretend Cybermen really, aren't they? Yeah. Although there is a further point with that. I'll say one thing more more thing about the Brigadier and then I'll say something about the Cybermen. The other thing I was gonna say about the Brigadier, I'm not gonna go into specifics on this. I I did overhear a conversation which leads me to believe that Nicholas Courtney's family were consulted before that was written into the script, and they gave it their seal of approval. I don't know if that helps you feel any better about it, Mark.
1: Oh uh, yeah, I'd, well I don't I don't think it was any kind of I didn't take it as any disrespect to Nick Courtney. Mm. I just felt it was a bit odd.
0: Now I can't say that for a fact, but that was the impression mm. I got from this mm. conversation.
1: I mean, kind of sticking with the Cybermen and the the, yeah. the way the finale sort of wound everything up. I felt it was in some respects quite a brave thing to do with Danny's story because I think a lot of people were speculating after Darkwater that somehow he would be saved and yeah. he would come back yep. uh, from the Nether Sphere. Um, but I thought it was a um, really the only way they could do it, really, was for him to to end up being the Cyberman. I thought that played out really well.
0: It, it didn't pull their punches at all on this. No. and. After so many years of Russell T. Davis saying, and at the end of this series, one of the companions is going to die, and none of the companions dying, you really weren't expecting Danny Pink to essentially kick the bucket at the end of this series. Mm -hmm. Whether he'll stay dead, well, I don't know. Mm. He had his opportunity to come back, but he sent the kid. Yeah, I'm just wondering if this is why Santa's in the Christmas special to bring Danny Pink back and reunite him with... Clara, I don't know any spoilers for the Christmas special,
1: though, so this is Did you guys see the the clip that was shown on Children in Need? I did, Josh. Yes, I I did, yes. Hmm, Getting a slightly different impression of Nick Frost
0: from seeing that. Well, he looks like a slightly more bad Santa. Yeah, I think so. We'll have to wait and see. I've got Mm -hmm. an email for later in the podcast from Matt Barber about Santa, so we'll talk about Santa when we get there. Okay. The Cybermen. I've never really this struck me the other day after Death in Heaven and it's something that's never really struck me before. The, in the very first sideman story, Mondaz, and we see the population of Mondaz being turned into basically robots. Mm-hmm. And then on Telos, they're turned into robots and in stories like Attack of the Cybermen, they're turning people from Earth into robots. In Tomb of the Cybermen, they're turning people from Earth into robots. Wherever Cybermen go or wherever... The cyber intelligence goes, whatever, they're trying to turn people into robots. But I mean, and this didn't strike me till Death in Heaven, because Missy's turning people into robots in Death in Heaven, and she's calling them Cybermen. And she's using the cyber suits that we've seen before. She's using the same designs. Mm-hmm. But there's not really anything to connect those Cybermen with the Cybermen from the Parallel Universe, or the Cybermen from Telos, or those from Mondas. They're kind of Erzat Cybermen. But then it struck me, aren't the Cybermen from Telos Erzat Cybermen too? Because they're not Cybermen from Mondas. And aren't Cybermen from Earth Erzat Cybermen again? Because they're not the same as the ones from Telos, and they're not the same as the ones from the Parallel Earth. Cyberman seems to have become in Doctor Who, and this is not a new series thing, mm. but actually it's an old series thing as well. Shorthand S- for robot. Shorthand for human beings who've been turned into robots regardless mm. of where it happened and where it, when and why. I don't know, what do you think of that? I love the concept of a Cyberman, I just
1: don't feel they've really uh, come out with any really mm. interesting stories since the very early ones, sadly. Josh.
2: Yeah, the body horror thing about the Cybermen, I think, has been, uh, in the new series, has been the big uh, the big push. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas in something like Earthshock, it wasn't about the body horror. It was about the attack of Earth and so on and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's interesting interesting you say that because when Russell T. Davis did it, it was more about upgrading technology, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And now Stephen Moffat's brought it back to the body horror, hasn't he? This whole Don't Cremate Me thing... It's basically Stephen Moffat's version of the spare parts technology of 50 years ago that's so parfait today that it's just... You couldn't do Cybermen the same way as you could back then, 50 years later. But Stephen Moffat's replaced it with this Don't Cremate Me thing, which is just as terrifying, isn't it? I think for all the shoddiness of the original
1: um, outfits... Don't get me wrong, I love them. Uh, But compared to how shiny and amazing they look now... I think they're far creepier back then because you had a sense that it was actually a person inside rather than just a robot. Well, that's that was... is
0: that not what Stephen Moffat's trying to bring back—the sense that there's a person inside there?
2: Yes. Mm. Yes. I would agree. And 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 I mean, Danny Pink pulling off the mask. Mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. that and and showing the inside where his face is. It's just. And even
0: without even without speaking, the Brigadier. You know, I mean, it's the, the story beats that tell that story. But when we see the Doctor saluting that Cyberman, it really hits home. I thought it did.
2: Yeah, I think to an extent it did for me. I I understand why they brought up the salute thing now uh, yeah. for, the, for that very purpose. But I think it was it, it might have been, you know, kind of stitch into this to this story in order for it to. Fit exactly what you were talking about, which is the the salute to the brigadier. And it's a full salute to the brigadier, a, a, an absolute, um, figurative salute to the brigadier as well as a literal one.
0: Oh, absolutely yes, uh, that's a fantastic moment when you see uh, the doctor being told in the plane, no the one thing he wanted you to do was salute him, and you never did, and the doctor said he should only have asked. Mm. You're just kind of assuming that somewhere later in that episode, the Doctor is going to salute that portrait, don't you? Yeah. You don't imagine for one minute that there's going to be a scene where he actually meets the Brigadier inverted commas and salutes the character instead. Mm. But what a wonderful bit of foreshadowing. Um, i tell you what, let's have a couple more emails and then we'll go back to talking about the series again. Is that okay? Yeah. Sounds good. On. Okay. David O'Brien says... Because these are all long emails today, pretty much. Although the last two are mercifully slightly shorter. David O'Brien says... David "Hi O'Brien. guys, that sounds like an Irish name, JR. David O'Brien says... Hi, guys. I've been listening to the podcast since the first episode, and I keep making excuses for not writing, mainly due to real life getting <laughs> in the way. However, after such an amazing series has come to an end, I thought I'd offer some <laughs> I thought I'd offer some talk. Oh, this is terrible. It seems it's to be
1: like channeling verbal Gummidge. Yeah, there. you
2: know what? It's like, a, it's like it's like it's also a combination. You you sound more like Perry than you do a real American.
0: <laughs> oh my god. Okay, we're going back to English. David O'Brien says Peter Capaldi has turned out to be one of my all-time favorite doctors with the potential of almost toppling the great Tom Baker. He just needs to lighten up a bit but only a bit. Clara has gone from being a pretty good companion to being a phenomenon and in my opinion is almost of the caliber of the great Sarah Jane. If only she could have stayed on for another series as I really don't want her to go yet. And as for Michelle Gomez, the best master since Delgado and let's call her the master, mistress doesn't sound right. After all, we wouldn't say doctoress. With the exception of The Forest of the Night, I have loved the stories this year. Even the Mark Gator's story was fairly enjoyable, although I still prefer the Crimson Horror. Okay, so now I've got those brief comments out of the way, I'll get stuck into a polemic. The issue of should the Doctor be female? Now, when I was 16 and JNT was suggesting this, albeit not seriously, my answer was a resounding no. When my mum asked why not, my answer was because he's always been a man and he has all the traits of a man. I was, of course, unable to offer any evidence other than the way women were generally presented on TV at the time. However, my experiences of women were generally based on relatives, because being a 1980s geek, I knew zero amount of girls who shared my interests. However, since then, I've met as many women as men who were strong, both <laughs> physically and mentally, courageous, moral, adventurous, cultured, cultured non-judgmental, kind and humorous, some who are occasionally rude, standoffish, pragmatic, imaginative and creative. All the things I associate with a body-changing alien who can turn into a Dobby lookalike when he's really old, but not into, shock horror, a woman. What can the Doctor not do in female form? Martial arts of self-proclaimed mother-hen Pertwee? Cricket, <laughs> scary-eyed stairs? The new master seems to be doing some of that. Pratfalls, running about, and remember how Pertwee used to run? Eloquent speeches, gravitas, being brave and fearless. I can think of several female actors who could pull off any of those. At least you'd have a good reason for being in a girdle. And don't get me started on the comment made by some people that casting a woman would be a stunt or a joke. The idea that employing a woman represents not taking something seriously has always been used as an excuse to exclude women from what at the time were traditional male roles, such as soldiers, politicians, scientists and yes, even doctors. The only excuse left is, but her tits will get in the way. In the end, it is a small c conservatism from both men and women that is stopping this from happening. By the way, I think that a woman in charge of the TARDIS isn't just a great role model for girls, it also reminds boys that girls are their equal and can also command authority, and a brave and intelligent male companion would equally be a good role model for boys as would a male doctor. And in many cases, the companion is the doctor's moral compass anyway, and is therefore arguably a better role model. Besides, there will probably always be a male-female dynamic in the TARDIS. A female doctor and a male companion keeps that tradition alive. Anyway, keep up the good work. It's definitely the most enjoyable podcast out there of any genre, Dave O'Brien. P.S. I promise not to be polemical in my next email. So, guys, that brings us to the subject of Missy. Now, <laughs> I thought
2: it was to female doctors. Okay, fair enough, <laughs> Missy.
0: Well, yeah, but... This is obviously, in some ways, a dry run. Do we not think?
2: Oh yes, oh oh yes, absolutely. I think it is a dry run. Um, I I think that he wanted to see what the reaction would be. Um, and, you know, my reaction was only out of shock that we'd see the master again, not that Missy was a the master was a woman. Surprisingly enough, I don't really think along these lines. It's kind of like saying you want a uh, person of color to be the doctor and that, you know, that Danny Pink is is a person of color. These are things I don't notice unless they're pointed out to me. Believe it or not.
0: You're British, Josh. (laughs) No, it's (laughs) it's, it. You know what?
2: You know what? I, I think that I've just grown up in an environment where. Um, people are people, and you don't discriminate yeah. because you know all people are crazy in some way, shape, or form, and it doesn't matter who they are. Um, and that's just that's just my upbringing and where I am right now. But I, I don't think anybody's brought up, and I've never heard this brought up that Clara and Danny Pink are a essentially a mixed race marriage. Has anybody right. or or, yeah. or girlfriend boyfriend? I know it was brought up with Rose and Mickey. It definitely was brought up at that point. And it has not been brought up here.
0: I don't... In Britain, I just don't think... It's just something that's so common. Nobody takes a blind mm. bit of notice.
1: I did find it a bit odd listening to some of the North American podcasts. They, A lot of people had a real issue with the doctor being really mean to Danny in The Caretaker and they took it as him being racist, which I found very odd.
0: Yeah.
2: That is an because... odd statement, and I don't want to speak for my entire continent when I say <laughs> um that's not a you know, a common thought process, at least not, mm. not to many of us anyway. I didn't even I just, think about it in that. I'm not that I'm way. not
1: singling out all Americans as Oh yes, you are. Way. You totally are. Okay, alright, okay, <laughs> I'll take your point. But you know, the, the British podcast I've listened to, it doesn't seem to come up, but it's it was something that came up quite regularly and I found it a bit weird.
0: Mark, what do you think of the master being a woman then?
1: I thought she was fantastic I think it was all down to the casting and Michelle Gomez knocked it out of the park. Um, several people have said she's their favourite master or next favourite to Del to Del, Delgado and you've got to say she was perfect in the role um, I felt she was better than John Sim in as much as she had the kind of Bat poop crazy element to her, but she kind of kept it in check. Whereas I think John Tim went just a little bit too over the top with it. Um, But no, she was excellent. And uh, myself and Josh, I believe, both agree that she came out with the best phrase in the entire (laughs) series
0: eight. Go on then,
1: Doctor Chang. (laughs) Doctor Chang.
0: Oh really? (laughs) Do you know what I didn't? I've heard other people bring that up too. I got to say, I have other favorite bits in series. Eh? Oh, oh, there's a lot hilarious. of fa- favorite bits.
2: Like let me just say this that I think she's better than John Sim by far. I mean, I just I just find her to be mm. and and you're right, it comes down to the casting. I just think yeah. she's a spectacular master. Absolutely spectacular, and I want to see a lot more of her. Whereas with John Sim, I want to see a whole lot less.
0: Yeah, I like John Sim as an actor, but I just, mm. uh, he doesn't do that kind of role particularly well. He's generally a lot better playing quiet, reserved, introverted people. Yeah, agreed. Two things about the master being a woman then. One, I think, as well as being a dry run, I think also what's really clever about it is that because they, we've now got a female master. It allows them not to make the Doctor female for a while. What it does is event- essentially it says, yeah, big-. And what I'm saying is it's probably not some kind of uh, dark plot not to have a female Doctor. But what it essentially means is this argument would keep coming up time after time after time. The woman should be a Doctor until eventually people are shouting so loudly that you have to make the Doctor a woman just because people are shouting so loudly about it. But because you've already made the Master a woman, it kind of allows you a little leeway to not have to make the Doctor a woman until the time is right or until you find the right person. So what I'm saying is it just gives them that little extra extra wiggle room to make the right choices rather than to make choices built out of listening to fans. The other thing is, each of you two... Would you like to see a female doctor, Mark?
1: Um, I gotta admit, I've always been in the uh, camp that would prefer the doctor to stay male. Um, I think, if this is anything to go by, I think it, it represents a very good argument for having a female doctor. But maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I'm not ready for that just yet.
0: Oh, there's nothing wrong with saying you prefer the doctor to remain a man I don't think there Mm -hmm. is I don't think there's anything sexist about saying you'd rather the doctor stay a man as long as you're open-minded enough I think I'm I think I'm in the same camp I think deep down I'd prefer he stays a man but I'm open-minded enough I hope that if he turned into a woman I'd be fine with that too Mm -hmm. Josh how do you feel about it yeah
2: I hate to just simply agree with both of you but I do um this character to me I identify was as male and um and as a result, it's not that I will watch stop watching the show if 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 the Doctor becomes a woman, but it will be jarring for me. I just I just see him uh, as a male. Um, it, it at the end of the day, it doesn't really make a difference as long as the show has you know great storytelling and you know the TARDIS is still flying through time and space. I really don't care. But my preference is definitely for the Doctor to remain male.
0: And let's be honest, if they ever should cast a woman in the part. <coughs> They're not going to do it unless they get somebody spectacularly good. Yeah.
2: Oh, absolutely so, it's been
0: down to the curse. Then. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think I don't think we'd have any problems there. A um, couple of other things uh, I've been saying all year, and so I'll just find out your thoughts on this. I'll be I've been saying all year that I think the doctor's angst is the angst that comes of having a new body when you're expecting to be dead. It's kind of post regeneration cycle change angst. What do you two think? Could I be right? Do you think he's been particularly angsty, or do you think there's maybe another reason why? Hmm. I mean, right the way through
1: the series, he has, he's had this kind of element of doubt about, you know, he, it's been brought up several times. Am I a good man? And uh, you feel that he's exploring his own personality throughout the the series. Um, I don't know. I suppose it's because he's the first of a, a new batch of regenerations, it could be uh, a knock-on from that. Nah. I hate to agree with you, JR, but I think maybe you might have a point.
2: So I'll disagree. I just, Go on, I, then, I just, Josh. I just think that this is who this Doctor is. Um, you know, if any, if any Doctor should be angsty, it should be the uh, 11th Doctor, um, because the 11th Doctor sort of knows that this
0: is the final one. Um, My reading of it, though, is if you know it's the final one, then you just kind of relax and accept it.
2: Well, it depends on how you accept your own death, which Mm. which if if you know that this is going to be your final regeneration, I mean, you're you're just as you're just like a human, really, in that in that respect. But uh, I mean, it's interesting that um, um, that in the beginning of series six, I mean, when he gets shot by the astronaut and mm-hmm. he gets shot again it was because it was to prevent a regeneration um while we all know that that he was being regen- anyway this is another t- statement another another yeah. discussion for another time in regards to Capaldi and, and his um his angst i think it's more about his personality change um his his movement back to being an older um an older man he hasn't been an older man in centuries um many centuries yeah and and he although I
0: guess he was at the end of Matt Smith's time, I suppose so he... we didn't see much of it, yeah but, but yeah
2: but but certainly, that doctor remembers being young,
0: yeah, he um, didn't start as an old man, did he,
2: yeah, exactly, I think that, that that his angst is more about um his current personality, how different his current personality is than it was before, and he's not quite sure um about w- what that change means as far as what who he is but but, I think that. I, I think that it, it provides us with a a much um a much more deep uh doctor. a, a doctor that you can you can identify with a little bit more well maybe we can identify with a little bit more than the um than the Matt Smith
0: Doctor. Now another question and something not entirely unrelated, but looking forwards now at the end of this series you have Missy telling the doctor Where Gallifrey is And of course it's not there And we have that really powerful scene Where the Doctor, knowing it's probably not there But can't Shake the hope Goes and looks, it's not there And he breaks down on the TARDIS console Yes
1: I saw a lot of people commenting on Facebook That they thought he'd looked out the door And had seen
2: Gallifrey And went crazy (laughs) Yeah.
0: Okay, fair enough
2: Mm. Yeah, I didn't see Gallifrey Did you guys?
0: No, no, I didn't no. see Gallifrey. It must have been I, a very
1: small speck. Yeah, think. I
2: mean, it, and it wasn't at that particular coordinates 100 by 110 no, by 02. No. It wasn't I think there. they kind
1: of missed the point. But yeah.
0: Now, Stephen Moffat said something really interesting in Doctor Who magazine. He said Gallifrey is no longer in a bubble universe. It's already back in our universe. It's just that the doctor doesn't know where. It's, he doesn't.
2: It's Ravelox. No, I'm just kidding. Well,
0: <laughs> yeah. the Doctor's not aware of this yet. But Stephen Moffat said Gallifrey is back in our universe, mm. and I suppose it's just a case of the Doctor finding it.
1: Well, he's been doing all those equations, hasn't he? So uh, that's going to. Yeah,
0: fun. yeah, yeah. I was going to say this, to my mind, is where the series is going to go in the next year, or perhaps the next two years, depending how long Moffat and Capaldi stay. I'm wondering now if Moffat's going to stay on another two years, and perhaps see... Perhaps see Peter Capaldi's initial three-year contract out, if indeed Peter Capaldi has an initial three-year contract. And I think the Gallifrey story will be across those three years. We've just seen hints of it this year. I think we'll have a bit more next year. And, of course, Missy, Michelle Gomez, has pretty much admitted she's coming back next year. Mm -hmm. I think she'll be recurring across all three years. And the end of the third year might be where the Doctor, presumably, and Missy, find Gallifrey. How do you feel, Josh, about the idea of, well, ever since the fiftieth anniversary, Gallifrey being somewhere out there and in the background all year this year, but of course, it's going to be more in the foreground at some point. The doctors looking for Gallifrey. How do you, how do you feel about all this?
2: Yeah, this is good. Um, it's definitely a new storyline. Uh, he's completely undone all of what Russell T. Davies set, uh at the beginning of of the show back in two thousand five um and and now we're going we're going to be searching for Gallifrey there's no doubt about it i will say this that um the way i see the end of the uh, of this particular doctor um is that he's going to find gallifrey um it's going to be a multi-doctor story um in which the multi-doctors actually see the death of one of their future selves that's the way that's what i think at the end of the 10th anniversary
0: of the new series oh, there you go wow. there you go there's your bold predi- prediction there's
2: your bold prediction right there
0: <laughs> well that's going to be the easter special next year then surely
2: <laughs> well it's definitely going to be no, in I series think, I 10 think we've got
0: to the point <laughs> but next year is the 10th anniversary so it has to be next year if that's the case well one of you is going to be wrong there may be an easter special i don't know stephen moffat winked at the audience when they asked him if he said at the at the one that's not on the DVD of the um, premiere Q&As for Deep Breath, mm-hmm. somebody in the audience asked him if there's going to be an Easter special next year to celebrate the uh, 10th anniversary. And Stephen Moffat basically said, I don't know, you'd better ask the BBC and then winked at the audience. Huh. So, what make wink. of that what you will. Mm. Well, he also said last week that he's only just writing episode one of next year's series which would also lead me to believe that he must have already been writing for next year's series because it's pretty late to start writing if they're going to start recording it in January. You'd have thought. Which also makes me think there's got to be something before episode one and wouldn't that be an Easter special? And if the Christmas special doesn't end with a scene involving Paul McGann, I'll eat my hat. Really? I'm just kidding. But if (laughs) mine will do. (laughs) That would be great. Wouldn't that be a shock? I would love to see him come back. Yeah, the very last scene of the Christmas special to sort of take you into the Easter special. Paul McGann walking into the TARDIS saying, hang on, this isn't my TARDIS. Or or it's and not the one you're the expecting. It's not the doctor you're expecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. this isn't the TARDIS I was expecting. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. This is a TARDIS, but it's not the one I was expecting. Yes, absolutely. Yes. No, we've written it for him. If that doesn't happen now, I'll eat your hat, Josh. Okay. Although you'll have to post it.
2: Okay, fair enough. I would love to see it. I'd love to see Paul McGann back. I, Oh, boy. I, I really hope that they take advantage of the fact that all of these previous Doctors um, are willing to come back, except, of course, uh, Eccleston. I think you could convince Eccleston to come back. I think that they should take advantage of that at some point. Maybe not this year, maybe, maybe not next year. Who knows? But I think that they should.
0: It's a difficult thing to do because most of the older ones look so much older now than they did then. It's... There's no way you can disguise it. You'd have to come up with a story in which that was a plot point, wouldn't you?
2: Yeah, but Paul McGann actually looks exactly the age he should look.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Paul McGann does. He's the one who does, isn't he?
2: And actually, I mean, Tennant doesn't look that much different.
0: Mm. Oh, no, the newer ones, the ones since Paul McGann. Yeah, that would be that's fine. That's what I I'm mean. That, about...
2: that No, that's what I mean. I, I don't mean anything from the classic series, no. Oh, right. Okay, no, 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 fair no, no, enough, no. yeah. I would not bring bring Colin Baker back to be the Doctor right now, no.
1: Well, I have to say... I. I did almost blub when Tom Baker turned up
0: in the yeah. 50th. Oh, that was I a know that's a special moment, case, yeah. but yeah. Speaking of the 50th, I was uh, put in mind of a point earlier today that Stephen Moffat had said prior to the 50th that he was going to use the 50th not just as a celebration of the first 50 years as the Doctor Who, but to set up the next 50 years. Mm-hmm. And after the 50th ended, people said, well... He saved Gallifrey, but you're not going to make the Gallifrey story last fifty years, are you? That's not what he meant. What he meant was, I've saved Gallifrey, which can give the Doctor a new regeneration cycle. Yes, exactly. Which sets up the next there's 50 your next. Years. Yeah, yeah, there's your next fifty yeah. years. exactly. I mean, it's like a lot of Stephen Moffat things. It's quite simple with the benefit of hindsight, but we don't actually see the Doctor get his new regeneration cycle till the time of the Doctor, so we don't put two and two together. Um, at the point of the 50th anniversary, do we? No,
2: we don't. No, but that's okay. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll all look back on it as a big blur anyway. Between <laughs> between between name of the Doctor, day of the Doctor, and time of the Doctor.
0: Oh, but what a wonderful blur.
2: Oh, yes, a wonderful blur. It's It was fantastic.
0: Right, I've got two more emails and then I'm going to wrap it up, okay, guys? Sounds good. Sure. Um, Reverend Captain Holoporo says, Revs up? Now then, boys. Long time and all that. I just wanted to thank you for reading out an email from my good friend and Diddly Dumb podcast co-host, Doc Whom. If there's one thing Doc needs more of in this world, it's airtime. Your lengthy waffle was all a load of rubbish, of course. The episode Kill the Moon didn't end with Clara and the Doctor having a spat and Clara storming off never to return, as you all say. It ends with Danny saying never leave something when you still care. So the missing scene is this. Scene in Clara's flat. Not from where I'm watching, ha-ha. Clara. (laughs) Hmm. Pinky Boy's correct, you know. Better ring the Doctor. FX, phone noise. Beep, 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 Scene, TARDIS interior. Doctor Who. Hello, Doctor Who here. Clara. Hey, the Doctor. Sorry we fell out and that. Totes, my bad. Fancy hooking up for a jolly? (laughs) Doctor Who. No worries. Laters. There you go. The scene that didn't happen, based on the end scene in Bark at the Moon that did happen.
1: Bark at the Moon.
0: Bark at the Moon, yes. Also, he says, says the Rev, leave it out with the bad science shizzle in Forest of the Night. You, JR, are always saying things like, yeah, farting monsters are silly, but if you're six, you'll love a farting monster, and that's the target audience. Well, it applies to science as well. My mate, as a seven-year-old, who was intrigued that oxygen and trees were linked. They then went and looked into this and found out all about trees and breathing and how they are the lungs of the earth. From our point of view, perhaps it's daft, but from a kid's point of view, easy access to a bigger world of knowledge so that one day they can grow into sidd- into cynical middle-aged podcasters dissing <laughs> bad science on Doctor Who. Oh,
1: that's driven me crazy listening to people moan about the bad science of uh, Kill the Moon. I don't and,
2: even care about that. Yeah, me oh. too. Me too. I don't care. Yeah. So don't care don't about watch that. Star
1: Trek if you're worried about that sort. You of know thing.
2: what? I mean, uh, again, I'll say this over and over again. It's like, oh, the bad science of a box that's trans- t- transcendently whatever, transcendental, <laughs> yeah. dimensionally transcendental. And yeah. and flies through time and space. I mean, stop there when you're going to your bad science, people. <clears throat> yep. Just let it happen. It's a story, okay? And I'm
0: giving you a virtual uh, high five here, Josh. Yeah, yeah. It's just silly. And it's also symbolic. Sometimes the things that happen in Doctor Who that are considered bad science, man, are just symbolic. The uh, the space dragon laying a new egg, yes. So that there'd be a new moon at the end of Kill the Moon. Okay, it might not be science the way we understand it. And since when has magic ever been anything other than science the way we don't understand it in Doctor Who? But it's a symbolic moment. It's showing life continuing and the cycle of life continuing. And this kind of thing is not supposed to... I don't think it's supposed to be taken completely literally. They could have had a scene on that beach... That lasted for several months as the space dragon's mother came down from outer space and laid a new egg where the old one was, but they only had two minutes of screen time, so they condensed that into a short scene in which the dragon lays a new egg. Symbolically, it's fine. Get over it. Yeah. That's how Doctor Who works. The
2: other thing is we don't know the science behind how that particular Yeah. Behind that particular life form and how it survives. And and maybe there's a method by which it it. it... It changes the, the physics around it. Who knows? Just stop, you people.
0: Maybe it lays a small <laughs> egg that, once exposed to uh, the vacuum of space, grows. Yeah. Rather like rather like the alien grows to human-sized alien in the film Alien just minutes after bursting out of John Hurt's chest. You it's, know, a, it it's, a,
2: it's as good explanation as any, but just, folks, leave it. It's Doctor Who. Enjoy. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, the fi- I was going to bring this up And then I decided against it And now we've brought it up anyway So there you go
1: Soz.
0: Finally, the the Rev says Anyway boys, thanks once again for having Doc for us If you're happy, we could make it a regular thing So that me and Al can get to the big shop in Or get a bit of cleaning done at the Who's <laughs> As featured on the Diddly Dum podcast Word up, the Rev He can't help mentioning the Diddly Dum podcast
2: Is that the Diddly Dum podcast?
0: It might well be the Diddly Dum podcast Oh no.
2: really? Never heard of him <laughs>
0: Okay, finally, this one's quite a nice one to finish on quite a mad one, but quite a nice one. Matt Barber says Hello, so Hello, Matt. so my half-baked theory. I'm now wondering if there are any unresolved questions left over from Robot of Sherwood. It seemed to be left open at the end whether Robin Hood was real or not at the time, I thought this was just acute ambiguity, another example of the shift towards fairy-tale narratives. Now I'm wondering if it's a dangling question that's going to be resolved in the near future. If Moffat brings back the land of fiction, or perhaps a non racist version of the celestial toy maker, or simply creates a similar plot device himself, then this might explain the incursion of mythic and literary characters into the real world. It might explain what Father Christmas is doing in the series, and might save Moffat from an armed visitation by Lee. Who knows? It might also resolve the whole Egg Moon controversy and the widgety green fingered sprites that grew trees. Love Matt. Well, Yeah, okay. There you go. Land of Fiction. Actually, I've said this. Land of Fiction is something that you could really do in the new series. Oh, you totally could
2: do something like The Mine Robber. Mm. Um, you totally could do something like Celestial Toymaker. Uh, yeah. both, both of those stories are definitely doable in the new series but we probably wouldn't now like that them. We, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no we wouldn't
0: but with modern special effects and such you know Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS was almost to my mind an example of how such a story like a modern version of something like the Mind Robber or something like the Celestial Toymaker, Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS was almost a, an example of how it might look with the uh, The scene where you see the sort of tree that builds the TARDIS, that tree of Mm -hmm. spectacular stuff. And then when he goes through to the engine room and it looks for all the world like he's at the seaside. And then when he goes through to the broken heart of the TARDIS where all the bits are sort of hanging in the air all around them. And then he goes to the real heart of the TARDIS where there's an actual sun in the Mm -hmm. centre of the TARDIS. Spectacular visuals, which show what the series is capable of. Now, if Moffat wanted to go down that route and do something along those lines of the Mind Robber or the Celestial Toy Maker, or even Warriors' Gate, as another example, there you go. Is this is the best time to do it? Yeah, if I have I... somebody like. If
2: if I had a dollar for every uh, time that uh, Stephen uh, that we've brought up things that Stephen Moffat could do as a result of some unanswered question, I would yeah. I would be a millionaire.
0: Yeah, you're probably right.
2: Or a pound. I think a pound more because it's worth more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, thanks for coming to join. Me in talking about series eight, it's been good to get your thoughts. Pleasure, yeah, the pleasure, pleasure was all ours. Yes, I don't know, Mark. It's been really nice to catch your thoughts. We should have been catching them all year, and finally, it's nice to get them.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: And love it, was just lovely to get Josh back as well to be able to catch up after it was time heist you came on to talk about, yes. wasn't it? Before, yes, it was. Yeah.
2: Yes, uh, yeah. it's been a pleasure, man. I really enjoy talking to you guys.
0: Oh, we've had a we've had a wonderful series in series eight. And I can't wait to see what happens next year. Me Before neither. Josh
1: goes, I think we should let him make, get a couple of little plugs in for any podcasts that he may wanna We've already done the Who On Who, but you got a couple of others on the pipeline.
2: Yeah, um I'm gonna be on the blue box podcast, um, very, very oh, soon. Yeah. I, I, I thought that's really good. Um uh of course the memory cheats, uh where we select uh, a a random classic who story and talk about it. I do that with Stephen Shapansky of uh, Radio Friscaro. You might know him; he's kind of popular in these parts. Mm, and of course, never heard of him. Never, never heard of, of him. <laughs> of course, the mostly harmless cutaway, which at some point in time you will hear my voice speaking from many months prior, <laughs> and we'll leave it there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've recorded all those, but none of them have come out yet. Have yes, you? we've recorded a bunch of out. them.
2: Yeah, the first one has come out. Deep breath. One oh, has it? Yes. Oh, I'll have
0: to go and download that yes. then. Yes.
2: Yes. Um, I I feel fairly certain that uh, we've done them all in one one respect or another. I'm not on all of them. I'm on most of them. Um oh, okay. But but if it's not me, it's likely to be uh, Chris Burgess, who's also on um, uh, Radio Friscaro. So he's he's interesting to listen to as well, or a little bit more interesting than me.
0: Get away Josh, (laughs) don't put yourself down (laughs) Okay then, for another week I was JR I was Josh And I was Mark And we will speak again soon